0: So we are in part seven of the adventure series, part six, excuse me, part six of seven of the adventure series. Now, can anyone who has been here one of the last seven, six or seven weeks tell me what the theme scripture for the whole series is? What? Anyone? No one was listening. That's okay. Sometimes I ask my wife what I preached on on Tuesday and she can't remember, so no, I'm kidding. I'm going to make up for it by putting myself under the bus later in this message, so it kind of balances out. Can anyone tell me what book it's from? Corinthians. Corinthians. (laughs) 4th Corinthians? 5th Corinthians? 2nd Corinthians? 2.14? Is that an address? Okay. Let's all say it together. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Yes, an amazing promise. Hopefully we're not a rotting smell to the world. Hopefully we're walking and we're living in obedience To Jesus Christ, who is a good shepherd, that the fragrance of his gospel is diffused through us, that people could experience and know his love, his great love for them. And we're looking at just the first several chapters in the book of Acts and watching how God diffuses the knowledge of his gospel, the fragrance of his gospel through the early church in Judea and Samaria, which is an area of about 50 square miles, ironically about the same size as the Central Coast. And so today we're going to be looking at a passage in Acts chapter 9, which is just one of my favorite passages. There's so much hope in it for us. Now, to set this up, um, the... uh, the chief priests, or the religious people of the day, were super excited about Christianity. They were super excited about uh, all of the miracles going on. They were super excited about the, the people who were becoming followers of the way. Right? You aren't listening, right? True or false? False. False. This was a very disruptive thing that was going on. They thought they had put this movement to bed when they crucified Jesus. Then people were talking about him being raised from the dead. They didn't believe it. Some that did believe it were either persecuted or they, they, uh, they, they fled, they went into hiding. It was a big deal. And then all of the things that they heard about that Jesus was supposedly doing, setting people free from being demon-possessed, uh, healing diseases, telling stories that would just people would marvel at, multiplying bread and fish and all these just signs and wonders and miracles. all of a sudden, those things which they had heard about now were happening. Through his followers. Yes, that's how it's supposed to be. So then, the chief priest there was there was the the hit man for the chief priest. His name was Saul of Tarsus. He was an intellectual giant. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was they uh, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was well versed. He knew the scriptures. And he was sincerely doing what he thought he was supposed to do to serve God. Sincerely in his heart. He was, he was not after his own power and just trying to squash something that he knew was was right and true for his own personal gain, he sincerely thought he was serving God by arresting and rounding up all of the followers of the way, or the followers of Jesus, and stopping them from teaching, preaching, or ministering this new gospel. And so Saul went to the chief priest, and he said, "Could you give me some papers so I can go to Damascus, which was the hotbed of the early church at that time? This was a few months in, maybe you know. I... Don't get caught up on the time. It was a, a few months in, and he asked for papers to go to Damascus. And so they get, the, he gets the papers, and he's on the and he's on the road on his way to Damascus." And Jesus appears to him personally in a, in a, in a flash of light that, uh, and a voice starts coming out of the light and he sees the Lord, but all the people that are with him, they hear the voice, the voices, the sound of the voice, they see the light, but they can't understand what's happening. But then Jesus says, hey, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus strikes him blind on the outside in his eyes as an outward sign of his inner blindness and puts him into a place of total dependence and humility on the people around him because he is on a road stranded this was there was no ADA crosswalks in Damascus wait 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 no I'm sorry It's always funny. It makes my kids laugh. There was no no accommodations. If you were blind on the road between two cities, you were dependent in that moment completely. And Jesus says, hey, you're going to go to this house in Damascus, and you're going to sit and wait for further instructions. Now, have you ever been... Sincerely convinced you were right about something, only to find out later that you were one hundred percent wrong. About a year ago, um, I was I was at fault for probably the biggest argument my wife and I have ever had in our. Let me make sure I get this right. Sixteen years of marriage. Uh, it was. It was towards the, we were having a, we weren't getting much sleep for a period of time. Uh, for a few weeks, we, our dog was old and was snoring next to the bed and couldn't sleep, couldn't be anywhere except there. Um, we had our kids, you know, there are three bathrooms in our house, but the only one they can use at nighttime is the one in our bedroom. Why is that? Who told them that? So tipped across, daddy. The door's locked. Then, Daddy, I can't find the shorts that I took off. Daddy, can you please tuck me in? And so this was going on for days and days. And I usually depended on Friday night to Saturday morning as my catch-up day on sleep. And so, because and we had to go, we were we were we had to leave at nine o'clock um, to go travel. Um, we were taking a trip as a family, and so. Uh, as we, we, uh, I was going to sleep in till probably 8 o'clock, go to bed early and everything was going to be fine. And so we went to bed early and then the kids, the parade of children started coming through as they normally did. And I was getting upset, not at them, but I was getting upset that I was losing sleep and the fact that I was getting upset kept me from going back to sleep. This has never happened to anyone. Then the dog starts snoring. Then my wife starts snoring. And she doesn't even really snore much. And I'm thinking, I'm going to the loony bin here. And at 5 o'clock in the morning, I finally get to sleep. At 7 o'clock in the morning, I awake to the sound of my wife's alarm on her phone on the bed, on the end table on the other side of the bed. And I'm awake, and I'm, my head's hurting because I've only got, like, you know, one cycle of sleep down, and I'm not even sure that finished. And I'm thinking, okay, she has to hear this. She has to hear this alarm. She's going to shut it off any second now. I look at the clock. Five minutes goes by. The alarm's still going on, and it's getting louder. Like, what is going on? This is twilight zone, right? Oh, no. I said, okay, I'm going to wait until 715 because I think I'm doing the magnanimous thing. Because if I get up, then she'll wake up. And I was hoping that she would recognize that her alarm was going off and she'd turn it off. So I wait till 7.15. And then I, conspicuously, making all kinds of racket, get up out of bed, huffing and puffing, go around. I pick up the phone. I swipe it to open it. And the alarm goes off. I, slam, I, I turn the power, hold it, turn the power off, slam it back on the end table, come back around. And I'm in a hump. And then Michelle says, what are you doing? I was like, your alarm went off and it's been going off for 15 minutes. She said, no, it wasn't. (laughs) Yes, it was. I went over and I swiped and it came off. She looked, she says, see, I hadn't had my alarm set. I don't know what you're talking about because I went over there. It had to have been set. I mean, I'm coming unglued. I've had no sleep. Finally, I was just like, I don't know. I, like i like, was beyond words. I go out and I just did some yard work like at seven seven thirty in the morning until it was time to leave and It was the only time in our sixteen year marriage where, I, where like we didn't resolve the argument now we have arguments, but we didn't resolve the argument before we left the argument, and this argument kind of stayed open for a week, and we were just like. Every day I'm like, why can't she just admit, you know, that, like, why can, how is this possible? And then you know the th- the stuff that was said during the argument is just accumulating, and I'm rehearsing it in my head. And yes, I know you love that you have a pastor who rehearses all of the worst things um, that a person could think and say about their spouse in their head over and over and over again. Um, I'm not proud. I'm just telling you that it happened, and. It came, the days go by, we get back from our trip, the next, I go to bed on Friday night, I kind of forgot, 7 o'clock in the morning, the alarm goes off. I get up, now this time I'd had a pretty good night's sleep. I get up and I walk around right away, I didn't wait the 15 minutes, I walked right away to the phone and it was off. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Then I come through the door, and just outside of our door, there is a desk, and my son's iPod was sitting right there. And he had set a bedtime alarm for Saturday mornings because he likes to get up and go out and jump on the trampoline or go out and do something. He doesn't want to miss Saturdays. (laughs) And he had left his iPod on the desk, and the alarm was set to go off for 15 minutes and then shut off. Now, I sincerely believed I was right, and even to the point where, like, I don't know how I swiped that, and at the same time, the alarm went off, but I had enough evidence. I was certain I was right, and I was 100% wrong, wrong, completely wrong. Now, repenting to God was one thing, repenting to Michelle, another so much harder. Yet why is that? We're talking about relating to the God of the universe who has done nothing wrong, nothing that's not good, nothing that's not uncharitable, nothing that's not unjust, nothing. And we railroad over that grace time and time again, and we repent to him as if it's easy. And when we bring that same repentance to a person, all of a sudden it's hard. Why? What is God doing when he says, forgive others as you forgive? Forgive me at what, what is the how does how did the Lord teach his disciples to pray? Forgive us as at the same time and in the same way as we forgive those. There's something interdependent and relational about God that we're being invited into. Let's look at this story of Saul through Ananias. Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 18. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Remember when we were talking about negotiating with God? Then Ananias negotiated with the Lord. No, it says, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints, your saints in Jerusalem. And here, here in Damascus where we are, here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name, like me. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Have you ever wondered why God answers prayer the way he does? Christ appeared to Saul on the road and struck him blind. Told him what was... He, he revealed and pulled back and said, hey, you think sincerely you're doing the right thing, but you're actually hurting and harming and persecuting the very God whom you're trying to serve. Stop. Go wait for further instructions. Why didn't Christ just reappear to him again after Christ saw him praying? And praying, I mean, what... You think I felt bad after going a week over an an alarm. What about going months arresting people, stoning people in the name of God and finding out that you're wrong, totally wrong? How do you feel? Ashamed? Guilty? Embarrassed? How could God ever forgive me, use me, fill in the blank? I mean, the list is long. You get the idea. He's in this place of despondency, praying, fasting. He had, he doesn't eat for three days. He is. Why doesn't Christ appear to him again and say, Saul, I have heard your prayers. I have Seen your fasting, and then told him what he was going to say. Why did God send Ananias? Why does God send you places? You know, there's a missionary friend of Agape, their missionary uh, Mike and Mary Corbett. They've been in Bolivia for probably 35 years. Um, early on in their ministry in Bolivia, this would probably be in the early 90s. They, uh, their daughter, developed a urinary tract infection way up in the mountains of Bolivia, where it would be a many-hour drive to La Paz on dirt roads that were dangerous. Not only dangerous because. You're talking mountain roads where the car could, you know, hit a pothole, or you could get stuck, or you could fall off. But there were, if you were, if you were traveling alone and you had any material possessions going these long distances, you you could you were at risk of getting robbed, or played, or manipulated, having your car stolen. Um, and so, now Mike and Mary Corbett, they declared healing scriptures over their daughter. They prayed in faith. And I'm not saying that they did everything right. I'm saying they did everything they knew to do. Nothing changed. A week and a half goes by. Their daughter is getting really sick. And they decide to make the drive to La Paz. So they put her in the back of the car or the Jeep truck, the type of vehicle, and they head off. Two hours into the journey, they see another vehicle with the, the hood up, and a man, single, one guy, trying to wave them down. They're scared. We shouldn't stop. We have our daughter with a UTI in the back. Who's, it's advanced. We need to get her some antibiotics like five days ago. If we stop. And we get and anything happens, she could die on the road if we don't get to La Paz. The Holy Spirit speaks to Mike and says, you need to stop for this man. So they pull over and they stop. And they offer him a ride to La Paz. He gets in the car. They don't know what to think. They don't know what's going on yet. They're driving down. And he notices the, uh, the girl in the back, their daughter. What's wrong with her? Well, we think... In broken Spanish, we think she has a urinary tract infection. He looks at them. Well, it turns out he is one of only two board-certified urologists in all of Bolivia, (laughs) and he was able to help them get her right into his clinic right then with no waiting, no forms, no nothing. She got the medication, and she was healed. Now, but why? Why? why does god not just heal her when they when they de- declare the healing scriptures over her because i know none of you have had that question none of you have prayed for something and then wondered how how is God going to make this happen? Or how is, why don't I see this materialize in the moment? And I am in no way, do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't bother with the faith confessions. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying we go to the word, we declare God's word, we walk in his word. It is life and health to our, to our flesh, to our bodies, to our future, to our faith. We walk in that. But our faith is not an individual sport. Our faith is not an individual sport. We are not self-sovereigns. This applies to overcoming sin, right? James 5.16 says we confess our sins one to another. You know, there are many people that out of pride (coughs) believe that by their actions, faith is an individual support because they won't confess their sins to other people. It's too embarrassing. It's too this. It's too that. It's too whatever. You know, they they don't want the accountability. They don't want the exposure. They don't have the depth of relationship. They aren't willing to be embarrassed or to risk embarrassment. But Scripture very clearly directs us. We're not only supposed to share in one another's burdens or share in one another's hurts. We're also to confess our faults when we fall short in our discipleship. Where we fall short, where we give in to our to temptations, or where we have fallen short, the Bible directs us to confess our sins for a reason. Our faith is not an individual sport. Growing in Christ, Ephesians 4:13 says, until we all, that's all of us, together come to the unity in faith and the fullness of Christ, this is how God is is building us together. We're not growing in Christ on a self-sovereign estate. For our own benefit. How about life in the kingdom? We, plural, are his masterpiece, singular. That word masterpiece is like a tapestry. It's being woven together. We are being woven together in ways that are beyond our comprehension and beyond what we understand. Our adventure is a mystery in many parts to us. We are led into things we do not understand. We can't see the whole picture. We don't yet see. It's it's God building in faith in us to walk and to trust in him and to grow closer to him. And also, we are privileged to be a part of all that he's doing. We're invited to the inner seat to to get front row seats, to, to see God answer prayer through us, and to God answer prayers to us through others. We're part of the story. We're part of his tapestry. We're part of his masterpiece. We, plural, are his masterpiece, singular. First Peter 2.5, as living stones, you all, you are all, we are being built together. How about expressing gifts? Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, it says we are one body with many members, one body with many functions, one spirit with many gifts, all ministering to one another. We don't have it all, all within ourselves. We are called into interdependency in the body of Christ. God answers prayer through us to another's. So in one sense, we are in rebellion when we cannot confess sin to, a, to, our, to, to one another and we, we fall prey to the lie that our faith is an individual sport. and on the other hand, we fall into the lie that faith is an individual support when we believe that we are supposed to create our self-sovereign estate of blessing apart from any dependence on anyone else. We are blessed to be a blessing to confess our sin one to another, rebellion and pride. They feed, they feed the self-sovereignty, the temptation to be our own master. And God himself, three in one, the Trinity, the perfect expression of real community is inviting us into experience the image, the part, of being part of his body, of being part of himself in his community. Even answers to prayer, if two of you, no, if you just say all your faith confessions by yourself, no, it says if two of you agree on earth to bear, and what about Galatians 6.2, to bear one another's burdens? There's this idea that we're going to get arm in arm and we're going to pray pray and walk together and lend our strength and support one to another. We are not on an individual marathon. When I gave my life to Christ, the thing that I was most ashamed about in the months to follow was the gross. Dishonor I brought on my parents through my teenage years. The vicious things that I said, the rebellious things that I did, how much I took advantage of their generosity, how much I took advantage of their leniency. How much I lied and manipulated and brought drugs into the house and did and, and brought girls into the house and ran and, and told them I was going to one friend and went off to, to, to other places to do things they would never approve of, to calling them and putting their faith on trial and in, in every manner, just I mean, the scenes of dishonor and disrespect over and over and over again. I mean, it was. It came to a place where, yes, I had repented before the Lord because God's word had gone into my heart and and just peeled back, right, the scales. But it was much different when I felt the leading of the Holy Spirit to repent and ask for forgiveness from my father. And I had an opportunity to go and do a family project um, with him. And, it would, and we had to spend about 40 minutes in his truck two ways, to and from this project to help a family member out with, some, with, a, with a yard project. And on the way up, I was trying to build up the courage to, to open the, the can. I mean, remember, he, I'd only really given my life to Christ a few months prior. He had not seen much fruit And I didn't know what the response was going to be. I didn't know where I was really opening a can for him to say, I don't believe you. Him to throw it back in my face. Not, not, not because he was in a bad way, but because that's really what I deserved. I was not really sure I was ready to face that. And all the way up, I didn't build up, I didn't have the courage we did the project. Then we get in the truck to go back home, and I'm starting to sweat behind my ears. I'm thinking, if I don't, I need. I mean, I don't know what this is going to be like. And so I said, I, I said, Dad, I, I need to. I need to tell you something. I need to ask you something, okay? I said Dad, I, I need to ask for your forgiveness for dishonoring you. I. Spent most of my teenage years in total rebellion and dishonored you in so many ways, you and mom, in so many ways. Would you, would you please forgive me? And he, he waited, I don't know, four or five seconds. I, I'm not sure he was, he wasn't, it, probably his mind wasn't even on anything remotely like that. Um, and then he said very calmly, and with total sincerity and without, there was no, there was no rage. There was no can that was opened, and he just said, "You're already forgiven." And I said, "And I, thought, well, well, don't you want to talk about it? Like, I, there, there are things. Like, I need to, I need to tell you about the things that that I have done. Don't you want to talk about it?" And he said. No, I, I don't want to talk about it. I have already forgiven you. And as I've reflected back on that day, in that moment, there is nothing that more convinces me of the reality, the truth of God's forgiveness in my life than the forgiveness I received from my father, from another person. So fathers in this room, you realize you have... An amazing opportunity and privilege to be part of the redeeming work in your children's life and making the great truth and love of our Heavenly Father tangible, touchable for your children. It was woven into the masterpiece. The mystery of why my dad wrestled with that and how he came, I still don't know how he came to the point where he really forgave me in advance of any fruit of, in my life. I, I don't know that story. I don't know it. I don't know the, the mystery of it. But it got woven into the masterpiece. You know, one of the things that I believe God was doing here is Saul could receive forgiveness from God. But how much more, how much more impactful, how much more real would it be if that forgiveness came through a man who was representative of the very people he was coming to kill and arrest. The very people he was out to squash, to stone, and to arrest, God sent one of them to him to minister that forgiveness and to anoint him for the work ahead. There are three ways in which Ananias ministered to Saul. One, he came with healing hands. Saul had come to lay violent hands on the disciples in Damascus, and instead God saw to it that a disciple lay healing hands on Saul. Look at your hands. Yeah, go on, look at them. What are your hands for? to return evil for evil, for violence, or to return good for evil, for healing. Ananias, the follower with no title, lays hands on and appoints the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament. Faith Identity. When Ananias walked into that room, he had seen no visible evidence of conversion or a changed life. And what did Ananias say to Saul? Brother Saul. He addressed him by his faith identity. Brother Saul, because he had heard He had heard by the Spirit what God was going to do. And before he saw any evidence that there was a change in his life or that he was converted or that he had repented or that he wasn't even a threat to Ananias, Ananias walked in and said, Brother Saul, has anyone ever called you by your faith identity, by the name that God has given you that applies to your future but that you have not yet walked in? Have you ever had the privilege to do that for somebody? That is faith. We get to co-labor with God and call things that aren't yet as though they already are. So much power in that <clears throat> on one of my rebellious seasons, a girl that I dated when I think I was eighteen, um, her parents went through a really nasty divorce. She got taken to a away on a fifty one fifty it threatened to injure herself and was put in a um, a mental hospital or a, for young people. And I'm not sure if it's a hospital. I don't really know where it was, but it was someplace far away to help her deal with some of her mental challenges. Um, and I kept going to, to visit her dad because I wanted some connection to her. And he would always tell me, Jeff, you're going to serve God one day. Jeff, you're going to serve God one day. Jeff, you're going to serve God one day. Jeff, you're going to be a minister of the gospel someday. And what had I done to him? I had helped ruin the season of his daughter's life. I mean, I was not a redeemer. I had earned no respect from him. Yes, he was a believer. And he called me by my future self, by my faith identity. And I remember after I got saved, I thought, how is that possible? How could he see that? Well, the same way Ananias saw Saul, the most murderous hitman for religion as a brother. And a confirming word. The same, when Ananias came in, he said, the same Jesus who appeared to you, and he recounted the things that Jesus said to him that no one else knew. You know, you and I, the body of Christ, we have been given the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, to illuminate the scriptures, all that God has said and all that God is to us. The Holy Spirit also leads us. He is our guide. And he weaves us and weaves us together in the masterpiece of those who are praying the faith identities of the future, the confirming words that we can go to people and confirm. You know, what, what would it feel like to be Saul when somebody walks in and says, you know that encounter you had three days ago? This is what that same Jesus, he has sent me to lay hands on you that you might receive your sight and be filled with his Holy Spirit. The power that he is inviting us to walk in. Amazing. God often invites us into things that do not make sense at first, that war against our biases and put us in a place of personal risk and vulnerability. These are the very things that draw us closer to God and one another in the masterpiece.